Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Lucas On podcast. Today is a conversation with Matthew Dix. He's a storyteller, he's a speaker, he's an author, he's a man of many talents. I was really excited to have this conversation with him today because um, I kind of, about six to eight months ago, I, I found a clip, um, another interview of him online where he talked about this concept of homework for life, which is uh, jotting down um, your memories from from the day as they happen, essentially, keeping note of all the little things that would make good stories in your life, um, just as a great way to not only retain your memories, but to remember and note down the moments that, that are going to be really special um, to you for future use. Um, and so we talk about that quite a bit in this conversation, as well as we talk about telling stories, why stories are important, his personal relationship to stories, um, how he kind of became obsessed with them and, and sharing them, um, a lot of kind of individual strategies and, and the thinking behind that as well. Um, and yeah, it was just, yeah, it was a really, really cool conversation. It was awesome to spend some time with him and, and really um, kind of see how his, his brain works and how his kind of thesis around life works when it comes to storytelling, writing, and homework for life. So I hope you enjoyed this. Um, thank you for watching. I guess kind of where I wanted to start with this one is storytelling is obviously such an important part of, of life and communication to you. You know, you, you have so many appearances and, and speeches and your book on storytelling and it, it kind of crops its head up in, in um, kind of every, every, every appearance um, online that, that you've kind of made. So I just kind of wanted to find out how did your love of, of stories and, and your kind of skills to storytell, where did that all begin for you? <laughs> you know, it's hard to tell really. I, you know, I've been, um, honestly, I think it's, <laughs> sadly, I think it was an attempt to get attention. Uh, when I was in Brazil a few years mm. ago, I was speaking to a bunch of students and during the Q&A, um, a young lady asked me, she said, you know, you tell all these stories online, on stages, you write books. Like, what's the deal? Why are you doing all this? You know, why so many stories? And no one had ever really asked me that question before. And the answer that came out sort of without any thought was, I said, I think I'm trying to get the attention of a father who left when I was eight and never came back and a mother who has passed away. And then the whole room got quiet. And I said, I think I'm having one of those moments, you know, one of those transformational moments. And, you know, I, I don't think it's entirely that, but I think it starts there. I think it starts with the attempt to um, the attempt to get attention as a kid when I wasn't getting any attention from the people who should have been giving me attention. And I think that carried forth in my life. I discovered that, you know, if I wanted to attract the attention of a girl in high school, the best way I could do it was tell stories. And the best stories to tell were the ones where I was ridiculous or stupid or foolish. Those were the ones that people seemed to like the best. So, you know, I, I learned early on that it was a way to get the attention that I wasn't getting in places where I wanted it. And I think it, it was born from there. And I, once you get good at something, you know, you kind of want to keep doing it because cause it feels good to do it. So I think that helps a lot, too. 
feel like that happens a lot. You're you're telling a story. You're kind of finding new ways to articulate something that's happened to you or some way that you feel about yourself in the world and you have a transformational experience well yeah i mean every story i tell is essentially about a transformational experience of some kind some are much smaller and i like the smaller ones you know in comparison to the big ones but you know it is true that oftentimes as i'm working through a story i think my story is about one thing and then to discover in the working of it, that it's actually about a different thing. Uh, a lot of times I'll work on a story sort of in front of someone because I work out loud. So I'll be driving to New York City to tell a story and the story isn't quite ready yet. So someone will be in the car with me and I'll finish the story. And, you know, one of those people who drives a lot with me, I'll never forget just recently, she said, I don't think that's it. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I think there's like four more sentences that you're not saying that are probably what you're really trying to say. And she was right. So I think a lot of times, you know, what we're doing is examining our lives. We're being deeply curious about our lives, you know, sort of obsessing over our lives sometimes. And I think in that process, you often figure out things about yourself that you didn't know when you began the process. And I think that's enormously powerful. Are there kind of general themes that you see pop- popping up through this process? You know, I, I kind of... I listened to a lot of, of your kind of interviews and, and read a lot um, in preparation for this. And, and something that I noticed kind of, of um, popping up as I did that, something that you've kind of spoken about quite a bit, is, is this idea of, I guess, insecurity or, or whatever it is that stops someone from starting things or just chipping away at their goals because of something inside of their identity. Um, and so, you know, obviously that's kind of like a big recurring theme for a lot of us. And I was just kind of curious what other kind of, um, yeah, emotional roadblocks, themes, problems do you think boil to the surface by telling stories? For me or for other people? For you, I, I think I, you know, I, I would love to love to ask what you what you think comes to the surface for other people, but um, I imagine it is quite hard to generalize. Sure, yeah, I mean it is. Although what you said is true, I run into a lot of people who are stuck. You know, I wrote a whole book about how people get stuck and how I'm unstuck and how I can help people. You know, for me, most of the time when I'm sort of unlocking something in a story. Essentially, I'm figuring out why I do the things that I do. And it's almost always related to my past and very often related to my childhood. So something I'm doing now as a 52-year-old is directly related to a moment I had when I was 12. And I don't see the connection until I begin working on the story. And suddenly I understand that. Sometimes it's not even working on the story, but just feeling in my gut that something just happened, that I had a moment, and I'm not sure what that moment is. Most people walk by those moments. They might have that sense that that was something important that just happened, but then they continue to move on. And a storyteller sits and says, all right, what was that? And why did that happen? And where did it come from? And why do I do the things that I do? And for me, the common theme is something happened in childhood, Matt, and it's still echoing in your life today. And when you find it, it's great because you can either free yourself from that echo or maybe that echo just suddenly makes sense to you. Um, one or the other, they're both wonderful to sort of unlock at some point in your life. 
I guess that kind of segues nicely in, into something that you um, I kind of discovered through discovering some of your content um, and and executed on for for kind of the last six to eight months of uh, 2023 um, this idea of, of homework for life um, now I've you know I've always kind of had um, something that was that was holding me back when it came to being an entrepreneur like a business owner um, I kind of had this um, aversion to to selling to really pushing my products you know I could make something I could get all the other steps of the the business up and running but then the moment I actually had to get out there and make that that right hook of hey buy my product I could never like I could never fully commit to it um, and it took me probably way too long um, to actually go back and revisit some of my memories of of being a child and I have this very distinct memory of um, working with uh, with another kid when I was very early primary school and, and we started up this this uh, you know this comic shop business where I was gonna write like a comic and he was gonna draw it and then we were gonna sell to to the other kids on the playground and so we took a um, a pre-order I think for like a like a Garfield comic <laughs> That, that one of the, the girls on the, on the playground wanted us to draw and she gave us like some of the money she had brought for lunch for this, this comic. And then I remember getting pulled in um, to one of the classrooms just after, just after lunch um, and one of the teachers telling me like, you can't be doing this, like this is not an appropriate thing, like you need to go and like give that girl her money back, like this wasn't, like this wasn't the correct thing to do and I'd never put together this this kind of memory that was knocking around in my subconscious with the idea that I was now uncomfortable taking people's money for goods and services and remembering that having that moment it now I have something where when I feel that resistance I I can I can reference that I can go well that's just you're still just relying on this bad experience. Right. Um, and so seeing, seeing your stuff around homework for life, I was like, I could see why this could be incredibly beneficial um, because not only are you jotting down your memories as they happen, but it also kind of opens the floodgates to remember things previously. Yeah. Um, and so how, how did you kind of stumble upon this, this concept of homework for life and, and start executing on it. Well, I was desperate to find stories. <laughs> I was mm. telling stories, you know, in New York and Boston and, you know, around the world at some point. And I met a lot of storytellers who had like 12 stories and they rolled one of them out every night and it's the same 12 and they were great, but I kind of wanted to be someone who had a brand new story every time he took the stage. And I created a list when I started storytelling of all the stories I could tell. And it was a long list, but it was getting shorter every day, you know, as I was telling more and more stories. And so I started like looking around for stories in my life and having a hard time finding them. And I don't know, something told me that there's just stories that I'm not seeing. I knew it. I knew there was stuff worth talking about. And so, cause I'm an elementary school teacher, you know, I decided to give myself a homework assignment. And basically, you know, I said, all right, every day you're going to look for a story. You're going to look for the most story worthy moment of your day. And you're going to write that down. Now, 
I don't write the whole story down because I understood fundamentally that I would quit on that. If I had to write a brand new story every single day, you know, there was going to be days when the story wasn't even going to be very good. I knew that. So I, you know, for me, it's an Excel spreadsheet and it's the length of a computer screen. And in that cell, I will write down my story, which is the moment that happened to me that I think might be story worthy, even when something doesn't happen that is story worthy that day. And it doesn't have to be a thing I did. It can be a thought I had. Someone said something to me. I saw something for the first time or, or the 50th time, but it made an impact on me. It can be anything, any moment where we just go, oh, wow, that's different, or I've never seen that before, or the thing that makes today different than any other day. And my goal was find one new story per month, 12 new stories per year. That would have been fantastic. And instead, I discovered I have a multitude of stories. I have more stories than I'm ever going to have time to tell. Uh, days are filled with stories. And, and it's not just me. I'm not special. Tens of thousands of people all over the world now do homework for life. You know, it's just the fact that we live our lives throwing our days away like they mean nothing. You know, so the end of the year, we just finished a year. You know, if I ask you to look back into 2023, how many days of 2023 can you actually remember? Right. The reason time flies is not because it actually flies, but because we take 365 days and we reduce it to 53 days that we can actually remember or 22 or even if we remember 110, that's still not 365. We just throw those days away. And once you throw it away, you never get it back. You'll never know what you did on October 12th unless in your calendar there's a reference to something you did. And even then, that's spurious at best. You know, you're unlikely to remember much about it. But Homework for Life says don't throw that day away. There's one moment at least in every day that you, that you live. And, and then, like you said, you crack open and suddenly when you're examining your current day, past events will suddenly bubble forth and they become moments in my homework for life too. You know, and when I started doing homework for life back in 2014, I was averaging about 1.3 items per day that I was writing down. And today I just did the math recently for a new book I wrote and I have 7.8 moments per day. Wow. So, yeah, and it's not because I have a more interesting life today than I did in 2014. <laughs> it's just because I see more moments. Back in 2014 I was looking for stories. I was like, that's going to be a good story. This is going to be a good story. Now I just recognize that a, a single small moment might ultimately be a story, but I don't judge it. I just write it down. It doesn't cost me anything to say, hey, a kid said this to me today. I don't know if that's ever going to be a story, but it did sound interesting or funny or horrible. You know, you know, my daughter did this thing today that didn't seem very story worthy, but I'm writing it down because it was different than anything she's ever done before. And eventually I discover our lives are filled with stories. About 15% of the items that I write down on my homework for life ultimately become a story or a part of a story, which also tells you that a lot of it doesn't, but it's still moments I don't want to lose. At, at what point did you realize, you know, this is going to be a tool that's not just helpful for me as a professional storyteller, but this is something that I could actually share with other people and they could benefit it from it in their lives, even though they have, you know, completely different fields of work. Yeah. What happened was I was sharing it with storytellers and they were the ones who sort of reported back to me what I sort of already knew. I understood pretty quickly that homework for life was slowing down time for me, that mm -hmm. days felt like days now instead of, you know, weeks feeling like days. I was accounting for my time. I was recognizing all the memories I was recovering, things I forgot that I couldn't believe I had forgotten because we forget everything if we don't hold on to it in some meaningful way. 
all of that started happening for me and I just genuinely felt better about my life. Felt better about the days I was living and felt better about the past and like you, felt more connected to my past and started seeing those connections. I wasn't sure if it was just me, you know, and I don't want to talk about it because it sounds a little earthy, crunchy, a little woo-woo, you know, it doesn't sound very strategic. Uh, But storytellers started getting back to me and saying, you know, this is great for storytelling, but it's changed my life. You know, there was a woman who called me once. She had attended a workshop like six months before. I don't remember her at all. But she calls me and she says, I started doing homework for life six months ago. She said, I'm 50 and I never thought I was leading an interesting life. She said, I thought I was going to die and go out quietly someday. And then she started doing homework for life and she realized how important she was to the world. She started seeing the connections she had to people and she suddenly recognized, oh, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, it's actually going to impact the world in a really negative way. Like my presence on this planet means something in a way I didn't understand before. And so that phone call like really hit me in terms of I should start telling people, even people who don't want to be storytellers. If you're a hermit, living in a cave and you never want to speak to another human being for the rest of your life, you should still be doing homework for life because every day you live is worth accounting for, remembering, holding on to in some way. And when you don't, like I said, suddenly 365 days becomes 18 days and you don't know where 2023 went. It, it, it didn't go anywhere. You just left it behind. Hmm. So what would you recommend to people who want to start doing homework for life, but obviously don't want to make it too complicated or or convoluted so that they lose progress, you know? Right. Well, first, go to my TED Talk. There's a a TED Talk online, Homework for Life. Just Google Homework for Life and watch that. That's 17 minutes of instruction that tells you exactly how to do it. But essentially, I would suggest you do it exactly like I do it, which is open up a, a spreadsheet, Excel or Google Sheets, whatever you use. What you want to do is make sure that it's simple. You want to make it like brushing your teeth, so simple that you couldn't skip it. So you don't want to force yourself to write a lot. I'm a novelist. I had to reduce the space that I had to write in because I know I'm accustomed to writing thousands of words per day. But when it comes to homework for life, if I even write 100 words per day, I will probably skip it at some point. And you can never skip it. It has to be something you do every day, even on the days when seemingly nothing happens. That's when you exercise the muscle most. So open up a spreadsheet. Have two columns, the date, and then stretch the B column across your screen and just make it a goal to write one moment per day, which is what my original goal was. Start the way I did, one moment per day. Then there'll be the day where you go, I got two. I got two today. Two things happened to me. And over time, eventually, you'll discover you have 7.8. You know, if we talk again in five years, I don't expect my average to be 7.8. I expect it to be higher because I believe I'm refining this lens as I look at my life. And every time I do homework for life, that lens is getting sharper and I'm seeing things I used to not see before. So, so just do it the way I did it and, um, and don't judge your entries. Don't do three days and look at it and go, ah, oh, this is nothing. Like there's, not, there's no worth here. It takes time. You know, it's like shooting free throws in basketball. You do not step to the line the first time and start making buckets. Uh, it's the same thing in homework for life. You just have to trust the process. Tens of thousands of people do it. You're no different than them. You're not special in any way. You're like the rest of us. You're living an important, meaningful, treasured life. You just don't see it right now. Do you think it's better done on the fly? So you, you know, you have the the app or your laptop at the ready so that you can note down memories as they happen. 
or do you prefer to kind of sit down at the end of the day and do them all at once? I do both. Okay. So it's a good point. I, you know, on my phone, I use a program called Notion. And when I see a moment, if I have my phone around me, I'll write it down so I don't forget it. Or more often, my laptop is actually almost always around me unless I'm like outdoors. So if something happens in my house, in the classroom where I teach, I'll jump on my laptop and just open Homework for Life and enter that moment right there too. So I do it on the fly as best as I can. But at the end of every day, I also sit down and reflect because doing it on the fly, you will miss things. At the end of the day, I sit down and go, all right, let me just quickly go through my day. I run through it. I see, was there anything that happened in each one of these moments? And I often catch an item or two that I didn't see on the fly, but now reflecting back on it, I recognize it has some value. So I think ideally you do it both ways. But again, let's not overcomplicate it. If you have to do it one way, start by doing it at the end of the day. Mm. And I guess, yeah, without getting like kind of too technical, what would you say your process is for um, like backdating memories that come to mind? Are you putting them in your homework for life document as well? Or do they? I do. I I mark them as a memory. I just mark memory because mm. I wasn't marking them as memories initially and then I would get confused because I'd go back mm. and look at my homework for life to review it and I'd say, when was I at the Chick-fil-A? And I go, oh, <laughs> that was a memory from six years ago. So yeah. now I just, I capitalize the word memory right before it and that, that way I know it's a memory. And if I know the date of it or the approximate date of it, I will also put the date in there too so I understand where this is coming from. And so then when you're converting that into a story, how does that process look like for you? Are you doing like a word search in the Excel document? Oh, I need a story about Chick-fil-A. Search it up or how, how no. does that kind of look? Uh, well, what I do is I get about 100 or 200 items away. So I enter when I enter my homework for life, I do separate spreadsheets, 100 words each, 100 entries mm-hmm. each. So I do 100 entries, I open up a new one. 100 entries, open up a new one. So my spreadsheet is enormous. It's got all those tabs along the bottom. So I allow myself to get a couple hundred away because I want some distance between the moment and my decision whether it's a story because a lot of times things in the moment feel like stories because they just happened and it turns out they're really not. And then more often than not, something doesn't feel like a story and then you know, a month later you look back on it and you go, oh, that actually was a story or that was the beginning of a moment that I didn't realize. I met someone... And on that day, I just thought I met someone, but now they're my enemy. <laughs> like they became my yeah. enemy. And so, yeah. so you start to see patterns and things like that. So I give myself some time in between the actual moment and the decision as to whether it's going to be a story or maybe something that just sits in this homework for life as a memory of mine that I'll review, you know, whenever I have a chance. When I'm on a plane and I don't have Wi-Fi, I will open up my homework for life and just say, all right, I'm going to relive 2017 right now. And I just go item by item. It's so much fun to relive a year day by day. And again, the things you forget, you're like, I can't believe I forgot that. Thank God I wrote it down. And every time I hit a homework for life moment, it's almost like going right back to that moment. You know, you can see it with clarity. Even though I don't write it down with great clarity, I don't include a lot of details. It's my life. I don't need a lot of details. I understand when it says, you know, Charlie sneaks outside and, you know, gets stuck in the hose and can't get his... I know exactly what that looks like. You know, I remember the day my son did that. There's no mystery behind it. So it's a great thing to do. It's great to relive your life because you've taken the time to account for it. Do you feel like they 
they hold more emotional impact than just um, taking a photo or a video of a certain oh, yeah. event would. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, a photo, you know, if you're old enough to look at a photo from 10 years ago, you know that sometimes you don't even know where the hell you were when you took the photo, right? <laughs> yeah. A lot of details are lost in photos. If you just look at, like, if you celebrate Christmas, look at Christmas photos for five years. You won't be able to tell me what Christmas was which, what you got on that Christmas for a present. Like, you won't know anything from photos eventually. There's moments when you're like, oh, I'll never forget this moment. Sure. But I think photos don't capture the feeling of the moment, the thoughts of the moment, the dialogue of the moment. And eventually you forget a lot of the details. Even though the photo was a perfect picture of it, it's such a singular moment and it doesn't encapsulate anything around it. So I don't think photos work very well. Video is nice, but the problem is no one ever goes back and watches their video. I mean, how many times do I have to be at a concert watching someone with their camera in there filming something? And I'm thinking, you're never actually going to watch that again. And if you do, you're going to watch it once. And it's so hard to sort through video. If you create a spreadsheet, you can sort through those items very quickly. You can skip from day to day to day in a way that is efficient and fun and you can see connections. Nobody wants to watch 93 hours of their own life on video to go find some moment. So I don't believe in the video either. I mean, I believe in video. It's fine. I video my kids all the time. And I'll watch my kids, but I, even as I videotape my kids, I know I'm not going to watch this very much, if at all. And I'm probably going to watch it when they're like 36. You know, they're 36 and I want to see what it was like when they were 10. It's going to take me a long time to get back to that video. So, so I don't, I, I, the photos and the videos, they're fine additions, let's say, but I think the text is what really matters the most. Yeah, that's really interesting. It, was, it, it had been something that I was thinking about lately when, when kind of a lot of this, um, like what actually is a photo debate has, has popped up in you know, tech circles now with, with the invention of, of kind of generative AI and stuff like that. Um, you know, the idea that taking a photo of the moon be, because the same, the same side of the moon always faces us, you know, we, we probably as, you know, as a species have already taken all possible images of the moon. Yeah. Um, and so I think, I, I can't remember who it was, maybe it was Samsung or something got into trouble for, you know, basically faking, faking a moon photo in one of, um, one of their <laughs> marketing materials. Um, and, and kind of the argument that, that a lot of people had in their favor was it doesn't really matter because the moon is going to look, you know, it's going to look the same. We have all the possible photos of the moon from our side. And yes, yeah, so I was just kind of thinking about that idea. Like when you go out and, and have an experience under the moon and you go, wow, the moon is beautiful tonight. You know, you snap a photo, you look back at the photo it's not because it's not really about the moon. No, and it's the photo is never feeling. as good. Yeah. yeah, my kids will be like, "Wow, look how big the moon looks, Dad! Take a picture of it." We look at the picture; it's never like it was. Sunrises yeah. and sunsets too. People are always taking photos of those. I'm always like, "Stop looking through your camera because it's never going to look as good as it looks right now." So actually, just look at the damn thing instead of staring through a camera lens in order to capture a picture that nobody, frankly, wants. Because no matter how good your sunset photo is. Better ones have been taken. So instead, enjoy the moment and maybe develop a story along the way. Maybe you'll, instead of being behind the camera, if the camera is put away and you're actually in the moment of the sunset, you might actually have a thought that generates a story that generates something of meaning rather than one of the 9,000 sunset photos you've taken over your life. 
What what is your relationship to technology in that aspect when when it comes to being a storyteller? Because you know, obviously, we're we're kind of uh, railing on uh, spending too much time in the camera and, and you know Snapchat and all of that. But but you've also said quite rightly that having all your memories in an Excel spreadsheet is um, incredibly useful, um, and I'm sure. You know, even platforms like the one we're using right now to record this podcast, great for amplifying your message, amplifying your stories. So I was just kind of, yeah, curious about your relationship with technology as a storyteller. What do you find helpful? What do you hate? Um, yeah, where do you kind of sit? <laughs> sure. You know, I, I guess what I like about it, technology is the ability to transmit your story to places. Like I wouldn't, what we're doing right now, through the help of, some software and the internet and a bunch of other things. What we're really just doing is having a conversation. We're having mm. an actual human conversation in two separate places, but as personal as you can kind of get without being in a room with someone, right? So the technology is allowing us to connect and that's ideally the goal. So for me, that means anytime I can leverage technology to reach people, that's a fantastic thing. Uh, I have no desire to interact, let's say with social media, in any way other than I step onto the social media platform, I place something there, and then I step away. So you'll never find me scrolling through Facebook. You know, my wife will be the one who tells me like, oh, your cousin had a baby. And I say, oh, really? And how do you know? And she said, well, I saw it on Facebook. You know, and I never see anything on Facebook. People would be shocked because every day I post to Facebook. But quite literally, I post to Facebook, and then I walk away. And then I come back later to see what people said about what I said. And I might interact with them in that post, but that's it. I'm not interested in anyone else's stuff, right? Twitter, I use only for news. And mainly for New England Patriots news, Boston Celtics news, and news about current events in the United States. I'm never scrolling through Twitter. I've never stepped on TikTok once in my life. I am sure <laughs> TikTok is a fantastic platform. It must be to be capturing the eyeballs. But I also know this. At the end of my life, there is no way in hell I will be thinking, God, I wish I had spent a little more time on TikTok, right? And because that is the truth, I will never regret not spending time on TikTok. I have yeah. stayed off TikTok, and I have never once in my entire life thought, ooh, I'm really missing out. I just don't think I'm missing out. I think it's entertaining. I think it's fantastic. The same way in the 1980s when I was in arcades and playing video games and dropping quarters into machines, that was great. Not the best use of my time, although admittedly, I was hanging out with friends at the time. We were playing games together. We were talking. We were meeting girls. None of that happens on TikTok, right? There's no like communal relationship where you're watching TikTok with a buddy. At least I don't think that's how people watch TikTok, right? I don't think they're meeting new people on TikTok, those kinds of things. So I'm very careful with technology. I love it. Use it all the time. I don't allow it to use me. I try to avoid allowing it to take any kind of control of me whatsoever. Have you had the experience that, that I've kind of um, slowly been having as, as I've, I've tried to kind of um, cut as much of that out of my life as possible? Still, still a long way to go. I promise, I promise you that. But you know, as I slowly cut it out, it, the, the stuff that I would want to find out about or, or see, it kind of has a way of 
filtering itself to me anyway through other people. So in the example that you gave, instead of you just looking at your phone and seeing, oh, something's happened in my family. Oh, my cousin got married. You know, someone's had a baby, you know, whatever it is. By not seeing that, you now have had an opportunity to be told about it by your wife. You now have a new new chance to, oh, really? Tell, like, what do you know? Tell me more about it. Uh, you know, I've had this experience quite a lot with um, movies. Like, I haven't watched a lot of movies over the past few years, but I've had a lot of conversations about movies because people will say, have you seen, you know, dot, dot, dot? And I'll say, no, you know, what happens? Tell me about it. And, you know, it creates this moment for human connection as opposed to me saying, ah, it was great, and then <laughs> we move on. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I'm also keenly aware that it was not that long ago that social media did not exist. Mm. And somehow human beings transferred knowledge of birthday parties and babies' births and graduations and all of these things, they were transmitted in other ways. And I think you're right that it's not that I'm missing out on these bits of news. I find them in other ways. You know, four of the foremost, I will say, the foremost successful human beings I know, my close friends who were super successful, all four have never touched social media once in their lives. Mm. And I think, I don't know if they are successful. They're not successful because they haven't touched social media. But I will tell you that it is a signal of their success that they have no desire to sort of like place themselves out in the world in some picturesque way for other people to look at. That, de mm. that desire does not exist in them. And because of that, I think that is a signal of who they are as human beings, as supremely confident, highly successful people. Now, I am on social media. I am on social media because I am an author who has to be present in some way. I sell course, storytelling courses online. I need to be there in some way. But again, it doesn't control me. You know, I am very careful about how I do it. And um, I engage in the platforms in a way that serves me, doesn't serve them. Uh, but yeah, that information that you feel you're missing out on, you'll find it. You know, if something's important, it's the same thing as when my phone rings. I almost never answer it. Almost never, because I always tell my wife, well, I know who it is, but if they really want to talk to me, they'll leave me a message or they'll text me. Why do I have to answer the phone? I'm, I'm not going to allow someone to interrupt my life because at that moment they want to talk to me. And mm. if they really want to talk to me, they'll find another way to get in touch with me. If my cousin really wants me to know that she had a baby, she's going to let me know. She's going to send a baby announcement or she's going to be inviting me to her baby shower or she's going to call me and have a conversation with me. And all those things are preferred than me to me scrolling through Facebook and looking at everyone's nonsense and and all the terrible fake stories that are trying to propagandize my life and all the products mm. that are being sold. I don't need any of that. I don't need any of it. I'm fine without it. Just to kind of double click on on what you said about your successful friends and, and I've heard you talk about this kind of in, in other interviews and stuff as well. You know, this idea that not as many people kind of are paying attention to you and really <laughs> care about yeah. you as much as you care about yourself. Right. You know the I spotlight mean? effect. 
Yeah. Spotlight effect. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's well documented. And I was just curious from your perspective with that in mind, how do you, how do you find that to be something that's empowering and not just something that's uh, kind of depressing? <laughs> no, it's empowering for sure. You know, okay. when you realize that no one is paying as much attention to you as you think they are by a yeah. fraction, like they don't care about you at all. When you have a great hair day, you're the only one who knows it. Almost always, science says, you feel good about your hair, nobody else noticed your hair, right? They've done all of these experiments where you look ridiculous and no one notices that you look ridiculous. It's empowering because, first of all, you stop caring about what you look like so much, right? You stop worrying about the pimple on your nose or you know, the, the, the way your hair looks or the, the stain on your jeans. None of that matters. Nobody remembers it. And all you have to do is ask yourself, do you remember what anyone else looked like today? Do you remember what someone was wearing? Nobody remembers anything. They're not paying attention to you nearly as much as you think. It also allows you to take risks in a way that you could never before. You know, I do stand-up comedy now. I was afraid to do stand-up comedy in the beginning because I was afraid to bomb. I was afraid I was going to get up there and not get laughs. When you tell a story, even if you want to be funny, if you're not funny, you're still telling a story, so it's kind of okay. It's a safe place mm -hmm. to be funny because when you're not funny, nobody cares. But in stand-up, you actually have to be funny or people recognize you failed. And so for a long time, I was afraid to do it. I don't care anymore. And I genuinely don't care because it occurred to me one day, wait a minute, when I see comics bomb, I don't remember it 10 minutes later or 15 minutes later, or by the next day, it's already forgotten. I've been to many open mics as a stand-up. People bomb all the time. Like, more people bomb than don't. Most people are not funny. I can't remember a single unfunny person. Not one. You know, you just forget those people. I can't even really remember the funny ones for the most part, right? We just are not paying as much attention to people as we think we are. Your favorite comedy special in the world, whichever one it might be, you probably can't tell me more than 20% of the content spoken in that comedy special, right? Mm. You've probably forgotten about 80% of it. And what you're really saying is there was 12 minutes that were extraordinary. And I would say, well, actually, he spoke for an hour and six minutes. What was the rest of it about? I don't know. It was really funny, though. It made me feel good. Great. That's what stand-up is supposed to do. But do you really remember it? Can you tell me what he was wearing? Can you tell me what shoes she had on? Probably none of those things, the spotlight effect. We don't care as much. So it's freeing. It allows you to take the risks that you're afraid to take in life because you think other people care what you're doing when most of the time they don't. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know, you bomb at the stand-up set and, and in, a, in a perfect world, all that, would, um, all that would end up in is just a bunch of people saying that they went to an unfunny stand-up comic in their homework for life, right? That's, that's there you go. the goal. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. If that, that might not even make their homework for life because that's a common thing. If they're going to right. a bunch of right. open mics, they see, they see bombs all the time, which is why stand-ups yeah. don't care. They actually start to celebrate the bomb because they know nobody remembers. You know, we all bomb. It's a normal thing. It's totally, it's totally normal. It seems like you're really good at deciding that you want to do something. I want to tell stories. I want to write a book. I want to do stand-up comedy. Um, you know, I, w I want to be a TED speaker, whatever it is. And encountering that initial bit of resistance. Oh, I'm worried I'm going to bomb. I'm worried, you know, whatever it is. But then pushing through it and just getting it started. 
you know, in your experience, especially, you know, talking to people through coaching and stuff, what do you feel like stops people from starting these projects that they want to do? Fear. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's fear. It's fear of failure. It's fear of um, being criticized. It's fear of letting yourself down. You know, I, for me, what I try to tell people is we need to turn our fear around. The fear you should have, the only fear you really should have in these regards is the fear of regret for what you didn't do. There's going to come a day when you regret what you didn't do. And that should be the only fear that is guiding you. Everything else doesn't matter. So we take our steps forward as hard as they may be, recognizing that even if we fail, at least we won't have regret. You know, if I wanted to write, I've, you know, I've written novels and books, but there was a day when I hadn't published a novel and I was writing a book and I wanted to be published into a novel. But if it wasn't and I had never published a single book, I still wouldn't have regret because I did the thing. I wrote the book, you know, and if a publisher didn't recognize its brilliance, that's not on me. That's on them. And that means I'll write another one and I'll write another one. But as long as I'm writing, there's no regret. The only regret comes when I stop doing the thing that I said I was going to do. And I think saying things out loud is really important. It's another great use for social media for me. When I decided to do stand-up, I made it a goal. And I put it on the internet as one of my goals. As soon as it's on the internet, that means I've spoken it out loud to the world. Now, maybe no one's paying attention, but tens of thousands of people actually read those blog posts. So oddly, they are paying attention. But even if they're not, I put it in the world. I said I was going to do it. Now, I either do it or I regret not doing it. A lot of times we walk around with ideas in our heads that we don't speak out loud. Oh, someday I think I might do this, but we don't say it. Instead, you need to call your friend and say, I am going to do this thing. I'm telling you right now because I need to be accountable to myself and I'm going to be accountable to somebody else and you're the one. Now you have to mm. do it, right? Now you've created a situation where if you don't do it, you're going to suffer regret. So you have to make that declaration. When you decide you're going to do something or decide you want to do something, you can't just let it sit in your head. You've got to say it out loud. You've got to say it to the world. You've got to make it something that people know about so you're forced to at least attempt to do it. And the attempt will, re will remove the regret. What is the thing that you're saying out loud, the thing that you're telling yourself that <clears throat> drives you forward to do the things that you want to do? Are you just kind of checking out things that interest you and stopping along the way and w when there's success in them? Is there kind of a, a grander mission to your storytelling? No, there's not a grander mission. You know, I, I tell people to seek horizons, but not mm. points on the horizon. So, mm. you know, I'm always trying to set goals, which means somewhere off in the future, that's where I'm heading. And in storytelling, for example, I know I am heading in a direction where I want to be telling stories to bigger audiences and reaching more people and working with bigger companies and things like that. So that's the direction I'm heading in. But I'm not saying to myself, you know, I want to be the chief storytelling architect at Amazon someday. That's not like, that's a silly goal, right? That's not sensible in any way. So I tell people, pick a direction and start moving in that direction. I'm a writer, you know, I write novels and now nonfiction, I write magazine articles. I say to myself, I'm looking for a way to get my sentences in front of other people. That's the direction I'm walking in. It started with novels and then it became magazine columns as well. Then one day it became nonfiction. Someone asked me to write comics one day, so I became a comic book author for a little while, right? So 
I just say yes to these opportunities, recognizing, yes, writing is a direction I'm going to walk in. Sometimes new opportunities open. You know, I started watching an aviation channel on YouTube because I was curious about whether the things that happen in airplanes and movies could really happen in real life. So I thought, mm. oh, it's probably online. So I went online and I found this guy. Um, 7-4 Gear is the name of his channel. His name is Chelsea. He did a bunch of videos showing what is real in movies regarding airplanes and what could never happen. And so I watched those videos. Then I discovered he had other videos about um, critiquing landings. There's people who film these landings and takeoffs of planes, and sometimes they don't go so well. And so he would explain why the landing was bad, why the takeoff was bad. And then he did other videos related to aviation. Pretty soon I got kind of into aviation. And then I started reading about aviation. And then I started studying about aviation. And then one day I was flying a plane. It was not something I ever planned to do, but I was interested in planes and movies, which pointed me in a new direction on the horizon. I never thought I'd get in a plane and fly one. That was never my goal, right? But eventually, because I kept walking in that direction, studying aviation, then my son got into it. We started going to uh, museums for old airplanes. Like we started, you know, going to all these places. And then one day I found myself in an airplane trying to decide, do I want to become a pilot? Is this a thing I want to do? When I got in there, I decided I don't really want to be a pilot. Like, this is fun. I like doing it. I'm not going to go get my pilot's license. But I will probably go on a plane again with a, with a guy who will take me in the air and then say, okay, controls are yours now. And I get to fly around in the plane. I don't have to worry about the takeoff or the landing. But they'll take me up there and let me fly wherever I want. That's pretty great, you know. I discovered flying is kind of like just driving a van, though. It's, it's like not as special as I thought it was going to be, at least for me. <laughs> but it was a direction and a horizon that I continued to walk until I said, okay, I think this is about as far as I want to walk. And I sat there. Yeah. Maybe someday I'm going to go, you know what? I want to try that again. Maybe I want to fly. But, but that's what I do. I find things that are interesting to me. I start walking in those directions, and I see what, what pops up along the way. Do you feel like that's, that is genuinely kind of the best way to set horizon goals? Because I love that concept so much. Um, but just kind of thinking about it fr from the perspective of, of someone who's kind of, yeah, looking for more purpose in their life. Do you, do you think you go for something that you're kind of interested in, set that kind of horizon goal, start, wander in and then if it's not right go for another interest what what's kind of what do you think's the, the best process for someone who who uh, really hasn't started any of this yeah i like what you said you know yeah. i i you know i say say yes to every single thing it's very popular these days to say to tell people to like say no and you know respect their time and i think mm. that's stupid like saying no to an opportunity just means that you're arrogant enough to think what that opportunity is going to be like. Saying no would be, no, I don't want to fly a plane because I know exactly what it's like to fly a plane. That would just be a stupid thing to say. But people do that all the time. They just say no to opportunities. I always say you open the door, you walk through the door, meaning you try something for a bit, you give it an honest chance, and then if you decide, you know what, I don't want to fly a plane, I don't want to become a pilot, you close the door. And you walk back through and you say, okay, I tried that, no regret, I gave it a try, but I'm done with it, right? When I wrote comic books, I hated comic books. I'm not a visual person, so I can't really even read a comic book because my eyes don't scan the pictures and see things. I'm just looking for words. And if all you do is read the words on a comic book strip, you don't know what the hell's going on. Mm -hmm. So when someone came to me and said, we'd like you to write comic books, my first thought was, yeah, it's not going to be able to 
to be something I can do. Like I can't write a comic book because I can't even read them. But I didn't say that. Instead, I said, okay, I'll give it a try. I stepped through the door, right? I thought it was a dumb idea. I thought it was a stupid idea, but I still stepped through the door. It actually went really well for me. I didn't have to draw the pictures. I had to come up with stories and dialogue and someone else inserted the pictures for me. Like it turned out to be great. The only reason I'm not writing comics these days is because that comic book company went out of business. Otherwise, I'd probably still be writing comics right now. And if someone calls me tomorrow and says, hey, you want to write comics for us? I'd probably say yes, right? Because it was good the first time. I'll take, I'll take the step through the door again. When people say no, what they're essentially doing is creating an opportunity to regret a decision later in life. So often I say yes because I say to my wife, you know what? No one's ever going to ask me to do this again. So I either have the chance to say yes now or I will never say yes. I, I, so many things. I'm now the substitute minister for universalist churches, Unitarian Universalist churches. I've been the substitute minister many times in these churches. I'm not a religious person. I don't even believe in God. But a minister who took a workshop with me said, that's okay. In in our religion, you can believe whatever you want, but you're a good storyteller. You'd be great on the pulpit. When I go on vacation to Florida, I'd love you to run my service for me. So I did. I said to my wife, no one's ever going to ask me, the godless man that I am, to run a service at a church ever so why would I not try it once? So I drove two hours north. I led a church service with the help of a couple people in the church. And then soon someone else called and said, hey, I heard you're a really great substitute minister. Would you come substitute minister at my church? And I said, you understand I don't believe in God, right? And they said, yes, we're Unitarian Universalists. You get to believe what you want. We're coming together to learn good things. So now I do that. Most people would say no. That sounds weird, hard, difficult, doesn't fit my brand. I've never done it before. It scares me. All of those things. Instead, I stepped through the door and I discovered that was fun. I got to pull the bell, like pull the rope to ring the bell. (laughs) How many people get to pull the rope to ring the bell, right? It's amazing. So we say yes. Every time someone offers offers an opportunity, we say yes because that opportunity may never come along again. It is, yeah, it's, I think it's so, so fascinating and, and telling how almost the, the, the little pieces of your, your kind of thesis, your ideas, um, all, all fit together to, to paint this really, yeah, this really nice picture of, of storytelling and, and living like a worthwhile life, you know, because you have this idea of horizon goals, and then saying yes to kind of a lot of things, seeing where it goes. Um, and, you know, kind of the, the, biggest, the biggest complaint, as you said with that, is people not having enough time. But then you talked about with, with homework for life, it's a way to reclaim your time. Um, and, and also remember those special moments for when you said yes. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's really, yeah, it's really cool how a lot of the things that you talk about kind of, yeah, fit together like that and, and paint this really, um, really practical picture, I feel like, for people who, um, even if they're not necessarily like storytellers. Yeah. Um, I like that word practical a lot. I believe in it strongly. You know, yeah. you said, you know, people complain they don't have time. They have time. Because if you're scrolling through TikTok, you have time. And if you're watching a television show at night, a show that you're going to forget in six months, you probably have time. You know, you waste your time. One of the things I love to ask people is, what does the number 1,440 mean to you? And almost no one knows what that number is. 1,440. It's the number of minutes in a day. 
But instead of measuring our days in minutes, which we should do, we measure in hours, which means so often people chunk their day into hour blocks when oftentimes what they've put into their hour block might take 20 minutes. So they schedule oddly their lives. They think, oh, we're going to go to dinner. We'll be gone for two hours. No, you won't. You're going to be gone for an hour and 17 minutes. But you've now assigned yourself two hours, which means you haven't given yourself a chance to do anything with those other minutes, right? The worst part is we waste five minutes all the time. You finish something or you're waiting for someone to sort of like, you know, come to the door so that you can leave. You're waiting for something. You got five minutes and what do you do? The first thing everyone does is they grab their phone and they begin scrolling. They waste five minutes, right? I see five minutes as an enormous opportunity. Like five minutes, I can write 10 sentences in five minutes. I can start working on a new story in five minutes. I can go watch a targeted YouTube video on something I want to learn right now, QuickBooks, right? I'm trying to learn how to use QuickBooks, which I hate. But in five minutes, I could learn one QuickBook tool, which will get me to the end closer, closer to the end of all those QuickBook tools, right? So 1,440 is a number every single person in the world should know because we should be living our lives in accordance to minutes and not hours, and no one does. So when you think you don't have time, I'm here to tell you, you have time. You're just viewing your time incorrectly. You're wasting your time on things that mean, are meaningless ultimately, and you're wasting your time on things that you will not remember having done because they're not worth doing in the first place. What, what are your thoughts on kind of those, um, I guess, conventional productivity tools, like, for example, time blocking or the... Um, the was it the pomo method where you work for you know or write for 25 minutes take a five minute break do you do you employ any of those i mean i i would say that whatever works for you is good i um for writing for example i write in between the cracks of my life is what i tell people mm. so you know i spend a good two hours every morning writing because i get up at 4 30 in the morning and until about 6 30 i'm writing but then you know, my students go off to art class and I prep the next lesson and the lesson's prepped and I have seven minutes left, I sit down and I write. I don't wander the halls and, you know, waste my time doing nothing. I sit down and say, oh, I got seven minutes to write. That's great. You know, if I'm eating lunch and I have 30 minutes and it takes me four minutes to eat a bowl of oatmeal, I'm going to use the other 26 minutes for something meaningful. So I, I, I have blocks where I like to write. But most of my writing takes place in those little cracks in between. I meet people who tell me they can't write like that. They say, oh, no, Matt, I, I need to write, you know, in the morning. That's my best time. And I, I can really only write, you know, in, with a, people around me. So I go to a coffee shop. I love, the, I love the sounds, you know. And I always say, like, well, aren't you lucky? Because during World War II, there were men in trenches in Europe wearing gas masks. Bombs were blowing up over their heads. And they were fighting to survive. And they had small notebooks where they were scribbling down poems and stories that they hoped to someday publish if they survived the current onslaught of artillery, you know, artillery exploding around them. And they managed to do it. And yet you need 10 o'clock in the morning and some smooth jazz at a coffee shop. You know, thank goodness smooth jazz and coffee shops have been invented, by the way, because they haven't been around that long. So I don't know how anyone got anything written before coffee shops and smooth jazz, right? But that's the trick people do to themselves. They think they need like a situation that is perfect in order to accomplish a goal. The perfect situation is when you have minutes 
that are not being used productively. And I want to make sure people understand. When I say productively, for me, productively could mean wrestling with my son on the couch because every single time he asks me to wrestle with him, I say yes every time because I know someday he's going to stop asking me. You know, I spend enormous amounts of time with my friends on the golf course, in cars, driving to shows. My family and I go to Broadway. We're at restaurants a lot. I play games with my kids all the time. I spend enormous amounts of time with my family. So I sound a little bit like a productivity lunatic, but I am productive in the times when I can be productive so that I can transfer that sort of work productivity to life productivity in the moments that I have those times too. So I'm not implying that everyone should spend every single minute working towards their goal. But what is better, spending that that five minutes in between activities, scrolling my phone, or grabbing my son and arm wrestling him you know, on the floor? Which one is better? Most people are grabbing their phone. And I am saying, how can I spend five minutes with my son? That's going to make us laugh at the end, right? And that's very easy for me. My daughter's a little harsh. She's 14. She doesn't like to wrestle anymore, so it's a little trickier, but I can pull her downstairs and talk to her about her books, and she'd be perfectly happy and thrilled that Daddy talked to her about her books. So um, there's always something you can do to fill your time in a more productive way, understanding that productivity sometimes means spending time with family and friends. How are you kind of um, managing your priorities when it comes to what you're using that time for um yeah but you know because you've you've been involved in so much as you've kind of touched on you're like writing teaching and speaking and um you've podcast at various points and you know it's it's um there's so much going on for you um so i'm just kind of curious you know you say you're 15 minutes free you're waiting for someone it's before a meeting it's whatever are are you just gonna are you just gonna jump on it and do what feels right in that current moment or do you do you have some kind of system for working out what what the next thing to chip away at is i guess it's both usually it's what to do (laughs) what is due next is what's priority so a lot of times it's this is the thing that has to be done next so that is the thing i'll be doing But sometimes there isn't a thing that really has to be done soon. So there's no real next. And in that case, it's whatever I feel like doing. I do believe in sort of um, working towards your preferences. So if I'm working on a book, but that book is sticking me and I'm not making a lot of progress, I believe I'll push that book aside and I'll go do something else that appeals to me more. So when you have a lot of things in your life, when you have a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of pots on the stove, that's great because if one isn't boiling over, another one is. So I'm always looking to maximize my enthusiasm by grabbing the thing I'm most excited about at that moment. But sometimes, like just the last couple of days, I've had a book I had to finish and it had to be finished. I turned it into my editor today. So the last mm. couple of days, as much as I wanted to be doing other things, every free minute I had was, let me finish that book. Let me finish that book. So this is literally the first day I have not been stuck with the let me finish that book mindset. So today was one of those, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want, depending on my preferences, which is how I like to live. But sometimes life demands a timetable and a deadline. Well, I mean, congratulations for finishing it. And and, and thank you for, um, you know, choosing to spend an hour with me um, on on, on your first day off in a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a day off. I did teach my fifth graders today and took some okay. business calls. But, you know, it's that a book is like the monkey on your back. It's just 
it's always there until it's done. So um, it does yeah. feel good to have it done. So so thank you. I appreciate it. It's been a great hour. I really enjoyed talking to you. One final question that yeah. that I kind of round all the episodes off with, um, and I feel like this one's going to be yeah super interesting to see what you have to tell me um, because I feel like it's right in kind of your field. Um, big fan of constructive criticism. So what is something from your your knowledge base, your skill set? Do you have any feedback or suggestions for me for this kind of whole process, the <laughs> questions, the the responses, you know, whatever it is? Is there anything I could have asked you to prompt a better story, a better response? Could I have done more research in a certain area? You know, whatever you have to throw at me to make the next episode of the show even better and same with the one after that and same with the one after that. Well, let me turn it a little on you in a way that I mm-hmm. think um, isn't done enough. I work in the business world with lots of corporations, you know, consulting with them. I was working with a vice president. She was getting ready for a big talk at the Javits Center and she, gave, she delivered her talk to me and then I was to give her feedback. And the first three, three things I told her were things that she did well. And then I went on and talked to her about a couple of the things she could improve upon. And when we were done, she said, I don't really have people tell me what I did well. Uh, that was nice of you to compliment me. And I said, no, it wasn't a compliment. I said, as a teacher, what I understand is when I tell people that they've done something well, what I'm really telling them is do that consistently or maybe even do it more, right? So wow. feedback comes in two forms. Oftentimes, positive feedback is really useful to people because it is an indication of what you're doing well. Because a lot of times in life, we do something well and we do it accidentally or we're not doing it enough or not doing it consistently enough. And until someone says, hey, the way you're doing that is terrific, I have heard that from people before where they say, I love what you did, which is a signal to me, I got to keep doing that, right? My wife says, hey, I love how you, I love, she told me, I love the way you make cheeseburgers. You don't think I'm not making more cheeseburgers now because my wife loves my cheeseburgers, right? Uh, The Mm. best teaching lesson I ever had in my life, one of my colleagues sat in and watched me teach for an entire day. And at the end of the day, he said, you give more positive feedback than anyone I've ever seen in my life in your classroom. The next day, I was giving more positive feedback because I wasn't even aware that I was giving a lot of positive feedback because I thought it was just a normal amount of positive feedback. So I'm going to turn the question on you and tell you something that you did well, not to compliment you, but to encourage consistency with what you did and maybe even promote more of it, which is a great way to help people improve. So that's a lesson for your audience. Feedback can come in many forms. So the thing that impressed me the most about this conversation was the number of times I was, um, or you made it clear, and I understood that it was clear, that you had done some research beforehand. In other words, you would listen to me on other shows, and so I was not going to get all the same questions I usually get because you had already heard those questions asked of me, right? Mm. And so I'm fine when people want to ask me the same questions over and over again. I can answer them very easily. But when I deal with someone who actually spends a little time listening to me on other podcasts or on my podcast or reads my books, I know when I get that signal that I'm going to get a conversation unlike any conversation I've had before, at least to some degree. And I found that to be the case here. So I think when people do interviewing, if they can spend some amount of time researching and finding out what has already been asked so that they can either ask that question in a new and fresh way 
or spin it into something different. I think that's wonderful. I think that's what happened here today. So I'm encouraging you to be more consistent with that and maybe even do more of it because I thought it was great here. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. My pleasure. Um, well, yeah, to close everything out, uh, where can people find you? Is there anything you want to promote or send people to? Or Sure. Uh, well, they can always find me at matthewdix.com. Uh, and you can kind of find most of my stuff there. If you're interested in storytelling, StoryworthyMD, my initials, StoryworthyMD.com. Lots of free resources there. Um, I have courses that you can buy there. I just released a new humor course. So if you want to learn how to be funny, that humor course just went online. We haven't promoted it yet, but it is on the website. I don't know when we're going to promote it. It takes us forever to do those things. But it's there, so it can be bought. Um, but there's lots of free resources there. There's lots of, You can access my YouTube channel with lots of teaching there. Storytelling is this giant ball of information that's always growing. I'm always learning new things. And so I'm trying to bring it to people whenever I can. So if you go to storyworthymd.com, you can find all of my stuff there. Awesome. Well, yeah. Thank you so much again for, uh, for yeah, taking the time to talk to me. All right. My pleasure. It was really nice meeting you, Lucas. Thanks so much.